our study this morning is uh, focused on verse 5, but to help us to get a, a, a better understanding of verse 5, we want to read starting verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you uh, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Verse 5 contains Paul's final commands to Timothy. He ends his letter by summarizing the charge that is given to all gospel ministers. With using four commands, he marks out the four characteristics of a faithful preacher and servant of God. We have here Paul rattling off four commands. Be always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. Let's go through each of them one by one, beginning with the first one. Always be sober-minded. The Greek word is nepho. Uh, the idea is do not get drunk on wine. That's the lexical, literal definition of that word. Do not be influenced by an intoxicant. Do not be influenced by a foreign substance. That's the lexical meaning. But what is the meaning here? Is Paul talking about alcohol here? This past week, um, Emma asked me, what spirit means. What's the definition of spirit? And I told her it depends on the context, right? Because spirit can mean many different things. And students said, what kind of answer is that to a four-year-old girl, right? And well, that's the answer because the spirit can mean so many things. It can mean uh, Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. It can mean the spirit, the immaterial part of man, the soul, the spirit, the heart, the personality. It could also mean like atmosphere, Morale, the spirit of the Lakers after Game 7 victory was very high. So it depends on the context, you find the definition of a word. So likewise here, the lexical meaning is not to be drunk or influenced by alcohol. In its context, it means not being influenced by verses 3 and 4, what, what's happening in verses 3 and 4. The immediate passage informs us in the meaning of the Greek word nepho. Verse 3 and 4, time is coming. When people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, verses 3 and 4, that's a, a nightmare scenario for preachers, right? You, that's, a, that's a terrifying uh, uh, reality, a terrifying uh, 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 prediction by the Apostle Paul. I mean, because preaching in and of itself without people's response, is so very difficult. Preaching is so very extremely challenging for anyone who's endeavoring to do this. Pastor Bruce Thielman said, there is no special honor in preaching. There is only special pain. Amen, right? The pulpit calls those anointed to it as the sea calls its sailors. And like the sea, it batters and bruises and does not rest. To preach, to really preach, he says, is to die naked a little at a time and know each time you must do it again. 
Preaching is uh, might look easy, might look like it's fun. It's painful. It's painful. It's taking a little bit at a time and doing it again. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I never prepare for my pulpit with pleasure. Study for the pulpit is to me the most difficult, irksome work in the world. Preaching in and of itself is hard. Difficulty goes up 100% when um, people are not getting saved and people are not growing. Right? It's kind of like parents. Uh, you have, you know, moms understand this. You have a newborn, baby's born, maybe uh, six pounds, ten ounces. And you bring them home and you nurse and feed and care for days, 24/7, and then you weigh the baby and the baby has lost weight. How discouraging! How demoralizing! What if that continued for weeks, for months, for years? You care for your baby, you f- you faithfully feed and nurture this child and doesn't grow, right? doesn't grow. When that happens in the church, that's the most discouraging thing. What Paul says here is worse. It's far more disastrous. The people, they're not not growing. What will happen is people will stop listening to you. They will reject you and reject your message and instead they will turn their ears to listen to false teachers and they'll wander off and go astray and wander off to listening to myths. And that's um, the fear of many parents that one day our kids will stop listening to us. Not only that, they'll start listening to that guy on the TV, right? that guy on the radio, that musician on the MP3, and be led astray into disaster. Paul says, uh, this is the reality. Right. This is a source of much trials and temptations for anyone endeavoring to serve God's people. It is the vexing and unremitting trial for every preacher of God's word. This is why um, ministry is an invitation to discouragement. Invitation to this disappointment and heartache. You know, people tell me I had my fifth kid a few weeks ago, and they're like, oh, congratulations. And sometimes I respond, well, number five, it's not congratulations, it's condolences, right? <laughs> so if your parents out there, you know, number five, I'm so sorry. Like, I thought God loved you. Why would, he, why would God do this to you? <laughs> well, same thing for anyone who's going into pastoral ministry, right? When we have ordination for pastors and elders, it's not congratulations. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Right? Oh, my, my deepest condolences to you because what you are headed for is disappointment, discouragement, your heart being broken. All pastors understand this. And I, I've met you know, different kind of pastors here and all over the world. You know, some funny, some not so funny, and some very not funny, right? And some, you know, we're able, less able, whatever. Some can't play ball to save their lives, and some who think they are the best in the world and they still can't play ball. Very, very, many different pastors, but one common among all pastors is they've all known discouragement firsthand. You don't do pastoral ministry. You don't do, you don't, you're not a minister in the church without getting burned, without being hurt, without feeling um, the sorrow in your heart. Uh, even Charles Spurgeon wrote this. He said, fits of depression comes over the most of us. Usually, 
cheerful as we may be, we must at intervals be cast down. The strong are not always vigorous, the wise not always ready, the brave not always courageous, joyous not always happy. There may be here and there men of iron to whom wear and tear work no perceptible detriment, but surely the rust frets even these. And as for ordinary men, the Lord knows and makes them to know that they are but dust. No one is immune from uh, the pain and the rigors of ministry. Um, you read to your letter, it's somewhat lengthy, but it's worth our time. A pastor, he resigned from the pastorate, and he was writing to his fellow pastor, and it's honest words here. He wrote, My dear Jim, I am through. Yesterday, I handed in my resignation to take effect at once, and this morning, I began to work for this land company. I shall not return to the pastorate I think I can see into your heart as you read these words and behold, not a little disappointment, if not disgust. I don't blame you at all. I'm somewhat disgusted with myself. Do you recall the days in the seminary when we talked of the future and painted pictures of what we were to do for the kingdom of God? We saw the boundless need for an unselfish Christian service and longed to be out among men doing our part toward the world's redemption. I shall never forget that last talk on the night before our graduation. You were to go to the mission field and I to the first churches of the city. We have brave dreams of youthfulness, usefulness, and you have realized them. As I look back across 25 years, I can see some lives that I have helped and some things which I have been permitted to do that are worthwhile. But sitting here tonight, I am more than half convinced that God never intended me to be a minister, and if He did, I am not big enough nor brave enough to pay the price. Even if it leads you to write me down as a coward, I'm going to tell you why I've quit. In these years, I have not found but a few earnest, unselfish, consecrated Christians. I do not believe that I am especially morbid or unfair in my estimate. So far as I know my own heart, I am not bitter. But through all these years, a conviction has been growing within me that the average church member cares very little about the kingdom of God and its advancement or the welfare of his fellow man. He is a Christian in order that he may save his soul from hell and for no other reason. He does as little as he can, lives as indifferently as he dares. If he thought he could gain heaven without even lifting his finger for others, he would jump at the chance. Never have I known more than a small minority of any church, which I have served to be really interested in and unselfishly devoted to God's work. It took my whole time to pull and push and urge and persuade the reluctant members of my church to undertake a little something for their fellow men. They took a covenant to be faithful in attendance upon the services of the church, and not one out of ten ever thought of attending prayer meeting. A large percentage seldom attended church in the morning and a pitifully small number in the evening. It didn't seem to mean anything to them that they had dedicated themselves to the service of Christ. I am tired. Tired of being the only one in the church from whom real sacrifice is expected. Tired of straining and tugging to get Christian people to live like Christians. Tired of planning work for my people and then being compelled to do it myself or to see it left undone. Tired of dodging my creditors when I would not need to if I had been due, if I had what is due me. Tired of the frightening vision of penniless old age. I am not leaving Christ. I love Him. I shall try to serve Him. 
Judge me leniently, old friend. I cannot bear to lose your friendship. This is a reality for many pastors because they look out to the congregation and they see that they're not growing or far worse, they have rejected the message. They've closed their ears and they're listening to someone else. And with this discouragement comes the influence where pastors can easily become proud, bitter, resentful, and even angry. There is really, I think, nothing worse than listening to an angry pastor preach an angry sermon to God's sheep. They're not feeding the sheep. They're beating the sheep, heaping on them shame and guilt, heaping on them obligations because their hearts are so discouraged. Or maybe even they become cynical. Right? They lose heart. They become cynical towards the church, towards Christians, and towards the word. And so, even worse, they begin to compromise. They won't listen to God's word. They won't listen to the gospel. So I'll give them what they want to hear. Right? I'll, I'll tell them what, they, what they're desirous of. I'll give them applications. Right? I'll give them lists. I'll give them things that would, that would uh, ease their conscience, cheap grace and easy believism. I'll tell a lot of jokes, a lot of stories, even video clips to cater to them. Or maybe even worse, they'll be led to sin. Paul is saying, Timothy, this is what's going to happen. People will close their ears to you. and They will go astray. Don't let this uh, influence you. Don't let them, don't let this discourage you and lead you to either compromise in the gospel and cater to people and resign yourself to sin personally or in the church. I think either way, people in the church can discourage or lead pastors astray. Um, when the church shrinks, the church grows. You know, I, I'll say this in, you know, before God, I mean, I knew a pastor, I knew him when his church was small, and I knew him when his church was thriving and growing. And personally, I liked him better when he was a pastor of a smaller church. When he was a pastor of a smaller church, he passed more, <laughs> you know, he was more humble, he listened more, right? he was more tender, he was just more humble, a guy I could, I could hang out with. As his church grew, ah, he, be, he wouldn't listen, he became proud, he loved to hear himself speak, it was really difficult to fellowship with him. Either way, you go astray. And Paul is saying, no, as a pastor, you must always be sober-minded and how can a pastor who preaches the word of God be sober-minded? How can you be praying for us? Paul's answer is verses 1 and 2. Sober-mindedness comes from having our eyes fixed on the right object, which is God and Christ. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. As we preach the gospel, we're not to consider people's response and have that influence us. As we minister God's word, we are not to please, seek to please man 
as Paul said in Galatians 1.10, for then we will no longer be servants of God. Though with physical eyes we look at the church, with our spiritual eyes of faith, we are looked to Christ and God and His kingdom and His appearing. We are to minister God's word and proclaim the gospel to please Christ and not tickle people's ears. So whether people love the gospel or whether people hate the gospel, we are to be sober-minded, unmoved in our commitment to Christ's word and to the Christ ministry of the word because our desire is to proclaim the gospel before God and not before man. So if you're praying for the elders and pastors of our church, your caregiver leaders, pray that they will love you or pray that they will love God more. God, our spiritual leaders, we want them to love us, but Lord, may they love you more. We want them to be our servants, but Lord, we want them to be your servants before, first and foremost. We want them to preach the word, but we want them to preach and and their encouragement come not from the response of people, but by them being faithful to your word. They will look to you, to God who causes growth. That's the first command. Timothy, be sober-minded. Don't be influenced by these people who go astray. Secondly, endure suffering. Endure suffering. It's a, it's a compound word in the Greek, kako patheo. Uh, patheo is to endure. Evil is kako. It's, so it's, 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 it, let's endure suffering. It's endure evil. Enduring uh, suffering is for all Christians. It's not just for pastors. All followers of Christ, Scripture promises, will suffer in this world. Matthew 10, 22, all of you will be hated for my name's sake. John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, know this. It hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you. Because you are not of the world, the world hates you. 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, do not be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are all destined for this. So all Christians have a lot in suffering. But there is also a a unique and special suffering for spiritual leaders. This is a pastoral epistle. Paul, as a leader of the church and an apostle, is writing to a pastor, Timothy, and he forewarns him of the evil and suffering that is directed towards leaders of the church, and he calls him to endure this is not new in this epistle. In chapter 1, verse 8, remember? Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Join with me in suffering for the gospel. In that same chapter, verses 11 and 12, Paul said, This is why I suffer as I do. Because I was appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher. That is, that is the reason for my suffering. If I wasn't a preacher, if I wasn't an apostle, if I wasn't a teacher of the gospel, I would not be suffering like this. But I'm suffering because of my role in the church, my function in the church. 2 Timothy 2, 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ. And chapter 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, the call to the ministry, it is indeed an invitation to unparalleled blessing and unequaled privilege. And that is my testimony. You know, I'm not preaching this because something happened this week or somebody emailed me or somebody called me. Or, you know, South Korea lost. That's not the reason why I'm preaching this. It's, you know, the text for this day. 
I love being a pastor. I am undeserving of this role of a pastor in the church here at Cornerstone. I love the leaders. I love this church. I thank God for for what God is doing here. At the same time, I understand invitation to pastoral ministry is an invitation to discouragement, difficulty, sorrow, pain, and despair. Every pastor, no matter how richly blessed his ministry may be, knows those dark times when he is disheartened and downcast. And so Paul is telling Timothy to endure suffering because he knows this personally. He's not a professor. He's not, he's not just uh, understanding this in theory. He's not writing a dissertation. Paul was a minister of God, and he experienced personally what it is to suffer as a leader of Christ's church. To kind of... Uh, See that firsthand. Open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, I would say many would say that this is one of his most intimate letters. Uh, one of the letters that Paul reveals um, just the deep sorrows and disappointments that have plagued his heart as a minister of the gospel. And I just want to read some passages to, to show that Paul knows what he's talking about. He has practiced what he's preaching. He calls Timothy to endure suffering because Paul has suffered greatly. By the grace of God, he endured. Second Corinthians chapter 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort as, as well. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you, as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Verse 8, we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and He will deliver us uh, and on Him we have set our hope and He will deliver us again. Go to chapter 4 verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed. Perplexed but not driven to despair. Persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Chapter 6, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. 
by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and, and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. In the final passage, chapter 11, 23 through 29. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. In the chapter is verse 28. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? For Paul, the physical trials and pain were, you know, when you know when you go into labor and delivery, they say there's a scale of ten in terms of pain threshold, right? One is a very minor pain, and ten is the greatest pain you can experience that's giving birth. So as the mom's going through labor and delivery, they ask you, well, what number is your pain? So certain would say two, three, four, the pain gets intense, six, seven, eight, and ten is, you know, uh, very painful. That, I, don't, I don't know what it's like, but you know, moms understand what that's like. For Paul, the physical pain of persecution, sleepless nights, being shipwrecked, that's about a scale, a level of, of, of five. For Paul, the greatest pain he experienced was when Christians caught, persecuted him. Professing Christians sinned against him. And professing Christians sinned against one another and even turned against Paul. If there was ever a church that pained Paul, caused him disheartening disappointment, I mean, debilitated him in ministry, it was the Corinthian church. We know well through these two letters. Church at Corinth repeatedly broke his heart by their immaturity, by their shallowness, by their sinfulness, their indifference, their disaffection toward him, and their even outright rebellion against his apostolic authority. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is a sad litany of sin, of their disorderliness, their worldliness, and just about every other kind of spiritual disaster. The Corinthians were dragging into the church their former sinful patterns, they were tolerating the most grossest form of sexual perversion. They fought each other. They were suing each other, hauling each other into court. 
They're confused about marriage and singleness. They abused their freedom. They were arrogant about their freedom. They're abusing spiritual gifts. So much so they're contaminating and polluting the Lord's table. But in spite of all of this, Paul loved the Corinthians deeply. He spent over two years serving and ministering the gospel and sharing the God's word and his life with them. He hoped opened his heart wide toward them. But instead, they repaid him with rejection. And the capital was um, 2 Timothy 2, 4, 3 through 4 happened. These Corinthian believers... They closed their ears toward the Apostle Paul. And they began listening to false teachers. And they, they were influenced by them to rebel against the Apostle Paul. They turned away from Paul. They wandered off to false teaching. They attacked Paul's message. They attacked Paul personally. Led by this false teacher, this group in the Corinthian church, accused Paul of being a false apostle. They accused him of being an imposter, of having wrong motives. They were, telling, they were saying that, spreading rumors, that he was collecting money for the famine and for Jewish Christians, for Christians in Jerusalem, and yet he was pocketing the money for himself. That Paul's real motivation for ministry was financial gain. They were accusing him of being a coward. That anytime persecution broke out, Paul was the first one to flee. They attacked his character. They question his morals. And above this, they, they criticize his preaching. They attack his preaching. 2 Corinthians 10.10 10, His speaking amounts to nothing. And they, they really know how to hurt a guy. Right? Even the MMA, they have like, you know, uh, things you cannot do. You can't you know, bite. You can't do headbutts. Right? You can't do a low blow. They're, they're hitting below the belt when they're criticizing Paul's preaching. Paul was so disheartened by, their, by them not listening to him and going astray that I believe this is the lowest point of his life in ministry. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what was the most difficult time? What was the lowest point of your life in ministry? He would say, Troas. What happened to me at Troas? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 12-13, he he highlights, he writes about his experience there. He went to Troas uh, to preach the gospel of Christ. And he also want, was waiting for Titus. He had written to the church at Corinth a severe letter, a letter filled with rebuke and correction. And he was waiting for Titus to, to come back and send, give him a report on the Corinthians and, and how they were responding to Paul's letter. And he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Sovereignly, God opened the door for the gospel. And there are people whose hearts were open, longing to hear the gospel and even to be saved. But verse 13, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So here is Paul, this, this great apostle, the spiritual giant, you know, our hero, hero to all believers. What does he do? I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. 
because he was so discouraged with the church at Corinth. He was so depressed. He became like Jonah. He went the opposite way. He couldn't preach the gospel. You know, he said, he said earlier in 1 Corinthians 9, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. That was his heart, heart conviction. Right? His life ambition was to preach Christ and him crucified. And yet he was so saddened by the Corinthians, their ears being close to him and going astray, that he turned away from an open door of the gospel. Paul was there. Every pastor has been there. How did Paul deal with this? He recovers quickly. Look at verse 14. In the midst of his depression and discouragement, he cries out an anthem of praise and thanksgiving. But thanks be to God. Continues, who in Christ, he remembers Christ, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now the word there, triumph, triumphal procession, is a specific term used for our Roman triumph. A rare event, or even citizens of Rome would be lucky to see a, a triumphal procession once in their lives. Um, this was a parade given in honor for a general. A Caesar or an emperor would give this, this honor to a general who, was, who met these three criteria. He was leading the charge in the battle. And at that battle, over 5,000 enemy soldiers were killed. And it was not just recovering Roman land. There was an advancement, an increase of the Roman Empire. If these three conditions were met by a general, the Caesar would confer this honor of a triumphal parade on the main street of Rome. All the citizens would gather all the dignitaries would be there. Caesar himself would oversee this parade. And leading the parade would be the general. All the pomp and circumstance would be upon him, giving him great honor by the citizens. And following behind him would be all the men and women, the slaves, and the property that he had conquered. And as they did so, they would come and sacrifice the animals in the center of the city. And through it all, people would declare Triumph, triumph, victory, victory. Paul was discouraged and dejected because his heart was so low, but immediately God recovers his sight. And Paul looks at the one leading this procession. That Paul is not the general. Paul is not the victor. We are not to be victorious in our Christian life. No, we are the chattel. We are the conquered ones. One who has triumphed is Jesus Christ. He is our general. He is our mighty warrior. He has come and he has conquered sin and he has ransomed us. We are the property that he has reclaimed for himself. And as Christ sacrifices us to the Father, the fragrant aroma of Christ goes with us wherever we go. That's how Paul was able to overcome by looking at Christ. 
by fixing his eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. And that is how he endured through suffering. And that is how he is called Timothy, to endure through suffering. Two final commands, and we'll close. Much time has passed. We'll close quickly. So be sober-minded. Always be sober-minded. In your evil, third, do the work of an evangelist. The Greek word is euangelion. It is good news. Um, there were uh, the offices of evangelists in the New Testament church. There are those in the church today who have the gift of evangelism, who have this spirit and that ability to proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. And they're able to equip Christians for the work of evangelism. But note here, the command is not be an evangelist. The command here is do the work of an evangelist. And what is the work of an evangelist? He is to be always preaching the gospel. He is always proclaiming Christ. He's telling Timothy, Timothy, as you carry out your ministry, always be about preaching the power of God that saves sinners to believers and to unbelievers. Do not stray from this command of proclaiming Christ in season and out of season. And then finally, fulfill your ministry. We'll tack this on more with next week. It's the idea of completing what God has given to you. Don't just uh, start the race. The call is to finish the race. Don't just uh, start in, in, in the match, but finish the fight. And Paul shares his own life, how he has endured through suffering, and he has fulfilled his ministry. Now it's Timothy's turn to be faithful to the charge that God the Father has given to him. Now, who do we look to? For to all, to all of us, uh, this ministry of the word has been given to us. Um, you'll, you'll preach the gospel to your family members, and they'll stop listening to you. And you'll see firsthand people you love not only close their ears to all things Christian, but they'll start listening to false teaching and, and, and turn towards it and wander off to complete uh, uh, arbitrary uh, fairy tales. You experience for yourself um, suffering and persecution because of your faith. From even professing believers, you'll be persecuted for your faith in Christ. And not only that, God calls you to be always preaching the gospel. Always be about proclaiming Christ and fulfilling the charge that God has given to you. Being faithful stewards of all that he has entrusted. How can we do this? We do this by looking at who Paul looked at. Who did Paul look at? 1 Corinthians 11.1 Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Who is the one that has perfectly fulfilled these commands? It's not me. It's not Paul, it's Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul knows this. Our Lord was sober-minded as he faced rejection. Throughout the Gospels, it's a record of Christ proclaiming the Gospel, and people have 
closing their hearts towards Christ, rejecting Him, rejecting His message, and and calling with all, calling Him with all manner of evil, ascribing Him all kinds of evil things toward Him, or He's even doing miracles by the power of demons. In John 66, even His own disciples, after hearing of the of discipleship, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part with me meaning a radical repentance and radical trust in Christ. And his disciples turned away and left him. But Christ didn't, you know, he didn't get angry. Right? He didn't resort to legalism. He didn't compromise his message. He didn't evaluate his ministry based on whether people were following him or not. His heart was to please the Father. His heart was to do his ministry with God's pleasure in sight and not man. If anyone endured evil, endured suffering, it was Jesus Christ. They not only rejected him, they hated him, they persecuted him, they tortured him, and they murdered him. Peter talks about this as an eyewitness to Christ's sufferings in 1 Peter 2. 21, he said, for to, you, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was the seed found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threatened, threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body in the tree that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. So Christ endured through suffering and he preached the gospel wherever he went. To those who were undeserving of the gospel, he proclaimed the gospel to them. To the very men who were, were torturing him and murdering him, he proclaimed the gospel and then he fulfilled his ministry. Christ said in John 17, I, I finished the work, Father, that you gave me to do. And on the cross, one of his last sayings was to tell us, die, it is finished. Because Christ has done this in perfection, we are now, by trusting in him, able to strive after these things because the Christ enables us and empowers us. If you would pray, close your eyes, bow your heads and Close our time together, and um, I can't think of a better way to close our time by preparing our hearts to meet Christ through the elements. By close our time, respond to the Word of God, by recalling to mind what Christ has done for us on the cross. Let us prepare our hearts for that by confessing sin, by reminding ourselves the gospel of Christ and asking Christ to meet us through his truth as we partake of the elements. Father, we come together, and first we want to thank you for uh, these precious men you have given to your people throughout the world. These uh, precious choice servants who have been saved by sovereign grace, 
and who stand before your people week in and week out, these pastors and elders, and they faithfully carry out the ministry of the word and ministry of prayer. Lord, we pray, alongside with Paul, that you will grant them to be sober-minded, that though they love people, they will love you more, Though they are a servant of the church, they'll be first and foremost servants of God. And they would, you would grant them through the Holy Spirit, by the grace that is in Christ, to endure all evil, all suffering in their lives. And they will not uh, go astray to preaching uh, their own thoughts or ideas or, or preaching uh, the law or just applications, but they would be preaching the gospel in season and out of season. And Lord, these dear pastors and elders here and throughout the world, you'll grant them to finish the race, to fulfill the ministry. Lord, we pray that your people would always have a tender heart towards your truth, that we would be like Mary, like dear Mary and the feet of the cross, for of Christ, and listening to his words, and taking to heart all that you have for us, that we would, our hearts would be like um, soft soil that would take the seed of God's word and would produce a harvest of righteousness. God, we thank you for these truths. We thank you for your dear servants. And may you continue to build up your church all to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.